Both of today's sermons, sermon titles, come from idioms or expressions that we have in the English language, and they're both kind of related, and so I hope that you'll be able to be here tonight for that sermon, which this morning's sermon sort of sets the stage for and is related to. This morning's sermon, the title of it is that same idiom or expression that we sometimes hear when we hear that something is as ugly as sin. Y'all say that down here, right? As ugly as sin. But what exactly does that mean? Exactly how ugly is that? Exactly how ugly is Sin, Because we live in a world today where sin isn't all that ugly to a lot of folks. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the answer to that question, exactly how ugly is sin, is that sin is infinitely, infinitely ugly. Sin is ugly beyond our ability to comprehend. It is... It is Sin is so ugly. You know, it's one of those, it almost sounds like a punchline to a joke. Sin is so ugly. Well, it is. It is so ugly that it is beyond our understanding or comprehension. Sin is so desperately ugly as to defy even the deepest human imagination, at least according to God. You know, it's sort of like the saying as we get into summer. Some folks will say, man, it's hotter than, and you know how the expression goes, right? Well, newsflash, it's not. Because no matter how hot it gets, even if you take the temperature that it takes to melt steel, that still is not hotter than eternal fire because eternity in hell is going to be so hot as to sear the soul and there is no fire on earth that can burn a spirit as it were and in the same way sin is so ugly that I don't know what to put in the blank this morning I want to seek to try to give you some small idea of just how desperately and infinitely and awfully and unbelievably ugly sin is to God. And therefore should be to each one of God's children. To every one of God's children who have escaped its deadly grasp through God's grace and mercy. You know, God put a lot of planning, a lot of purpose, a lot of creative work and effort into crafting this universe, into crafting this old world, into crafting this earth for man to inhabit and to enjoy. Look around you. Romans 1 says that God's invisible attributes can be seen by that which is around us. As we study and as science begins to reveal to us more and more intricacies of everything that we see in creation. What an incredible God. And right down to the most infinite detail. How much purpose and order did he put into creating this universe? How much craftsmanship? You know, God once told Job, he said, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. 
if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit, God says, for it, and set bars and doors. When I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. God goes on to ask Job, he says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 13. In that text, God reveals just a few of the incredible intricacies and the power that it took and the craftsmanship to craft this incredible place. You know, we could read through Genesis chapter 1 and we could see just how perfect and lovely and ordered and complete and completely intricate right down to the last detail. That Almighty God in His great love for His creation was when He designed and constructed and prepared a place, listen, prepared a place for Himself to walk side by side with His creation together forever in this, in this incredible pure and sweet and paradisical fellowship that God enjoyed with Adam and Eve. But sin, sin is so utterly and infinitely and absolutely ugly and disgusting and abhorrent to God that when sin was allowed to come into that paradise that took all of this planning and all this creativity and all this power and God spoke and it happened and he saw that it was good. When sin was allowed to just come into and was welcomed into that divinely designed and created utopian environment that those who brought it in had to be kicked out. They had a choice. Sin or God. God said, don't eat of the tree. Satan said, surely you won't die. They had a choice. God or sin. What's it going to be? Well, we know what it was. They couldn't have it both ways. You never can. Despite all the divine love and effort that had gone into making that place so special, so that God, the Creator, could walk side by side, as it were, with His creation. All of the planning and all the beauty and all the intricacy and all the design and all the perfection that had gone into making that place so special due to their one sin, 
They had to be banned. They had to be kicked out because they welcomed sin in. They had to be kicked out of that paradisical place because sin is just that ugly to Almighty God. You see, you can't just welcome sin in to where God is and expect to stay there in His presence. Because once again, sin is that ugly to God. Just exactly how ugly is sin to Almighty God? Sin is so incredibly ugly to God that after all the centuries of time and effort that he put into securing the Israelites' freedom from Egypt, he was ready to destroy his very own people because of their sin in making a molded image, Exodus 32, 7-10. Think about all that time and effort and all God had done and the, the, the years that they were there and God had this whole thing set up and led them out and the ten plagues and the Red Sea and Moses and all of that. But God was willing, God was willing to destroy those people even after all that planning. Simply over their sin of making a molded image because sin is that ugly and disgusting to God. How ugly is sin to Almighty God? It is so ugly that even after all the decades of hard work and loving obedience that Moses, his servant, put in in leading the people, because of one sin, Moses could not enter the promised land. Now you can sit there and say, well, that's not really fair. It's got nothing to do with fairness. It's got to do with ugliness. Sin is that ugly to God. Just exactly how ugly is sin to Almighty God? Sin is so incredibly ugly to Almighty God that He had to turn away from and forsake His one and only begotten Son on the cross because Jesus had our sins. That's how ugly sin is to God. Matthew 26, 45 and 6. You know, some of our sons and daughters as they grow and become adults, you know, some of them may, may unfortunately, sadly, despite their upbringing, some of them may do some terrible and awful things. But you know, it would still take far more than most of them could ever do to make us turn away from them and let them die such a cruel death if it were in our power to stop it. Now when you add to that equation, number one, that God is a far, far, infinitely better father than any of us will ever be, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And when you add to that, that Jesus Christ never sinned and was the perfect son, that he never in his life ever sinned, not even once. He was perfectly and utterly pure in all his ways, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. When you add all of that together, you say, how could God turn his back on Jesus? Well, when he who knew no sin became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God in that moment could not even look at Jesus. Why? Because sin is just that ugly to God. Sin is just exactly that level of ugly to God Almighty. 
This is why it says, and I had asked you to open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is why it says what it does here in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14. He says, Paul writes to the church of Christ in first century Corinth. He says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? In other words, what possibly could the righteousness and pure, purity and holiness of God have in common with that that is just the opposite, or, or with sin, with the ugliness of sin? And he says in verse 15, And what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What part has a purified, washed in the blood, cleansed of their sin person, what do they have in common with all that sin? Because that sin is ugly and disgusting to God. He goes on to say, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you? Now he's telling the church this. He says, You are the temple of the living God, as God has said. Now watch this, church. I will dwell in them and walk among them. Sounds just like back in the garden, don't it? Was God walking with Adam and Eve? Yes, he was. He says, I will dwell in them and I'll walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. That's a beautiful text. But then comes the therefore. And we know what the therefore is there for. Therefore, because of this... Because God wants to walk among us, because God wants to be our God, because he wants us to be his people, because of that, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. What is God saying? I want to be your people, I want to walk with you, just like I did with them in the garden. That's what I, Because of that, therefore, you better not be playing with sin. Come out of that lifestyle. Come away from that. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will receive you. See, there's a condition there. I will be a father to you. And you shall be called my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. But it's all based on whether or not we're willing to come out from and be separate. Because sin is still ugly to God. That's why chapter 7 and verse 1 begins this way. It says, therefore, having these promises, having these promises that God wants to walk with us and be with us, we had better... Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Because God wants to walk among us and we want him to, we cannot invite sin in. That doesn't mean that we're not going to, don't, don't go away and say, well, Doug said we can't ever sin. No, Doug's not saying that. What Doug is saying is we need to do everything in our power to stay far away from sin as we can and keep it out of the church. That's what Doug's saying. And so, seeing how ugly sin is to God and having read this passage, the real question for his children becomes this. We know how ugly sin is to God. We've seen that. Just how ugly is sin to us? How ugly is sin to each one of us? How ugly is sin to you? As one who has been set free from the sentence of death which your sins demand, it's that ugly. But by the blood and grace of him who took your place, you don't have to face that sentence anymore. How ugly is sin to you? Because God says those who are truly his will truly have the same abhorrence to sin as he does. 
Do you know that? Those who are truly his will truly have the same abhorrence to sin as him. Let me prove that to you. Psalm 97, one verse. Psalm 97 in verse 10 says this. You who love the Lord hate evil. Very simple. So simple a four-year-old can understand it. You who love the Lord hate evil. You know, we have this litmus test verse, or what we sometimes call that in John chapter 14 and verse 15, where Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Okay? What is the litmus test for whether or not we love God? Obeying his commandments. We don't obey him, we don't love him. John 14, verses 15 through 23. If we don't seek with all we've got to obey God, now sometimes we make mistakes, but if we don't obey him, we don't love him. That's pretty simple. That's the way the sentence works. Well, this sentence works the same way. You who love the Lord hate evil. You cannot embrace evil and claim to love the Lord. It doesn't work that way. King Solomon said in Proverbs 8 and verse 13, which Landon read to us, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord, you want God's definition? When God says, okay, here it is, here's my definition. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If we don't hate evil, we don't fear the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. Can't have it both ways. We either love and embrace sin, or we love and embrace God, but we can't love and embrace, embrace both sin and God at the same time, because where there is willful, wanton sin, God leaves, or kicks us out. <laughs> you know... Some people in our world today are confused over physical issues. They don't know if they're boys or girls. But you know, spiritually, we can't afford to be confused. In other words, we can't have it both ways. Therefore, sin needs to be as ugly to us, we need to understand that, as it is to God. Therefore, those who truly love the Lord will hate it when they fall short in sin. I've had this discussion with one of you not too many weeks ago. You know, in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 24, the Apostle Paul there talks about how the very thing he wants to do, he doesn't do, but the thing he doesn't want to do is the thing he somehow seems to do. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this sin? Paul is ripping himself up because he's still messing up. I'm still sinning. I can't seem to do what I want to. I know what I want to do. I just somehow I can't seem to. He's fighting with sin. He's wrestling with sin. And he knows how ugly and disgusting sin is to God. And, he, and he, he's just, he's let himself down so much. And he's so angry. You ever get angry when you sin and you turn around and you look back and say, man, I shouldn't have done that. You ever done that? If you understand how ugly sin is to God when you fall and make a mistake, you do. I can remember... Early on when I was a Christian, I had this opportunity. I was talking to another driver at a, at a warehouse where we were getting ready to unload back when I was driving truck. And I, I don't remember exactly what happened. I don't remember if I said something I shouldn't. And, and he knew I was a Christian. I hadn't been a Christian all that long. But he knew I was a Christian. I don't remember if I said something or I got angry with him. Or, or, but I do remember this. I remember walking around the cab of my truck out of his sight, going over to the driver's side door, 
and put my head on the door like this. And talking to God and asking forgiveness because I'd blown it. I had not set the right Christian example. Don't remember what the incident was. I'd let God down and it broke me in two. That's the kind of attitude we should have when we make an inadvertent or unintentional sin because sin is that ugly to God and it ought to be that ugly and disgusting to us. But this godly hatred and abhorrence of sin and evil is not just when it comes to our own inadvertent and unintentional sin, and hopefully none of us ever intentionally sin. It should not be when it comes to just our own inadvertent and unintentional sin, but this should also come into play, and even more so, even more so, when it comes to the very purposed and intentional an ongoing disregard of God's law by those who purposefully, rebelliously, and defiantly cast God's word behind their back and they just flat out refuse to repent and obey God. According to the Bible, one cannot truly love God can't be done, cannot truly love God while willfully accepting and defending and embracing and supporting and condoning and engaging in the practice of willful and intentional sin by God's people. Because to in any way accept, defend that which is indefensible, to defend, to support to embrace or condone the ongoing practice of willful and impenitent sin makes the person who does so just as guilty by association as the one who's actually committing the sin according to God. Did you know that? Did you know that in some states that if you, say, if you give alcohol to minors even in your home and they go out and have an accident, you can be held legally responsible for that alcohol because it was in your home that they got it. You may not have gone out and run over somebody. You might not have had the car crash, but you can be guilty by association and charged with a crime. Those who condone and embrace and support and encourage the ongoing practice of willful and impenitent sin makes them just as guilty as the one actually committing the sin according to the word of God. You say, Doug, you keep saying according to the word of God. Where is it? I'm going to tell you where it is. Turn to me in your Bibles to Psalm 50. We could go to Romans 1, 18 through 32 because Romans 1, 18 through 32 explains the same thing. But I use that one quite a bit, so let's go back to the Old Testament and look in Psalm 50. Would you please turn there with me? Psalm 50, 5 0. Verse 16. But to the wicked, you say, well, who's he talking to? We're about to find out. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Apparently these were people that thought they were pretty religious. Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw, here we go. 
You say, well, I'm not casting God's words behind me. Let's continue here. Verse 18. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. This is God's definition of the wicked. Verse 16. Let's take a look at those words. Psalm 50 and verse 18. The word consented, that means ran with or condoned. That's what it means. Doesn't mean you necessarily did it. But to consent with him means you ran with or condoned his sin. Amos 3 and verse 3 says, Can two walk together unless they be agreed? And the whole idea is, is to walk with somebody in the same direction they're going is to agree with them. To condone what they're doing. To consent to what they're doing. You know, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, I don't see in the scripture anywhere where Saul of Tarsus in the back end of Acts chapter 7, do you see anywhere in that passage where Saul of Tarsus, it says, picked up a stone and stoned Stephen? Do you see that anywhere? Did he stone Stephen? Do you see that in the text? Do you? This means yes, this means no. Let's try it again. Do you see anywhere? Thank you, Matt. <laughs> no, you see nowhere in the text where Saul of Tarsus picked up a rock and threw it at Stephen when they were stoning him. You don't see that. But you know what you do see in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1? It says, and Saul consented. He might not have thrown the stone. He might not have thrown the stone that opened up Stephen's flesh or that killed him. But he consented. He was just as guilty. Also in verse 18, you have been a partaker with adulterers. This is the same idea as the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 5 verse 22. He says, do not share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Don't partake. Don't condone. Don't consent. Look what he says over here in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn to Ephesians 5. Look what Paul writes to the Church of Christ in Ephesus. Fifth chapter. Speaking of being partakers, and I'm coming right back to Psalm 50 here in a minute. In Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 5, look what Paul says. But this you know, Paul said, you know this, this is a fact, this is not going to change. This you know, that no fornicator, not one, no not one we sing, right? No fornicator unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God he says let's get this straight you already know this let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience he said don't let anybody fool you you already know this this is not going to change therefore do not be partakers with them for you were once darkness. You once walked in the dark, Ephesians 2. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship. How much is, when he says have no, how much are you allowed? Zip, zero, nada, none, not even a little bit. Not even an eyedropper full. Not even enough going ahead of a needle. And you all know how I feel about needles, right? Not even that much. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 
Those who reject God's righteous decrees and rebelliously practice such sins, as well as those who approve, support, and encourage those people in those sins are all one and the same to God. They are wicked according to chapter 50 and verse 16 of the Psalms. Live and let live does not cut it. When it comes to God and sin, sin is too ugly for him. That's why King David, the man after God's own heart. Some might say, well, yeah, but look at the mess David got into. David repented. David repented in tears. David came back and repented before God in tears. David, his heart was broken over his sin and the ugliness of it. And David repented all out, full out with every fiber of his being. David repented. So David, the man after God's own heart, had a right to say the things that he did in the Psalms in places like Psalm 139, 19 through 24, and especially Psalm 101. Look in Psalm 101. Psalm 101, beginning at verse 1. Look what David says. Because he understood the ugliness of sin. David said, I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. Now watch this. I will behave wisely, in a perfect way. Now, I didn't mean that David never commit sin, but he, he would give every fiber of his being to behaving the way God wanted him to. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate, that's pretty strong language, the work of those who fall away, it shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. David said, not in my house. This wickedness and this evil and all of this stuff that those who, who depart from the Lord want to bring, it ain't coming into my house, I'll tell you right now. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, David said, I'm going to destroy him. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, that one who will not repent of their sin, that one who will not, not repent and confess and do those things that God tells them they have to do like David did. He said, I'm not going to put up with him. Him I will not endure. That's what he says right there in verse 5. Verse 6, he says, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell in my house. David said, only the faithful. And nobody but. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. How do you think David felt about sin? Tell you how he felt. Sin is too stinking ugly to be in my house. That's how he felt about it. David felt about it this way. I will neither support, condone, defend, tolerate willful sin and satanic defiance of God in my house. Not going to happen. Same idea as Joshua in Joshua 24 verses 14 through 15 when he told the Israelites there, Now therefore fear the Lord. 
Serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, Joshua says, if that's not what you want to do is serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. David says, you make your own, uh, Joshua says, you make your own decision, but I'll tell you right now, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, it is one thing not to tolerate willful ongoing, impenitent, disgusting sin in your own house. But let me ask you a question. Is it not even worse to promote and accept and support and condone the practice of that kind of sin in the pure and holy household or church of the living God? In the eyes of the living God, in whom there is nothing in his eyes, there's nothing in his eyes that's worse or uglier or more personally disgusting and enraging to God, who is so pure and holy, than the proud, ongoing, willful, and defiant practice of sinful disobedience. Why on earth do you think the Apostle Paul was so wound up over the situation in 1st century Corinth, in 1st Corinthians chapter 5, where you've got the man sleeping with his, with his stepmother? Why do you think Paul so wound up about that? I'll tell you why Paul so wound up about that. Because they were proud of the parading of sin in the very household of God. And Paul said, oh no. Sin is too disgusting. Impenitent, willful, ongoing sin is too disgusting to God. This does not belong in God's house. Stop parading it. And start putting an end to it. You know, one way to ensure that the wrath of God comes upon a person, or one way to ensure that the wrath of God comes upon a congregation, is for them to help and aid and assist and support and welcome the wicked who refuse to repent. Second Chronicles 19.2 says, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. God can't tolerate it. He's not going to. It's that simple. One way to ensure that the wrath of God comes upon a person or a congregation is for that congregational person to help, aid, assist, support, or welcome those who, quote, hate the one who rebukes and abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Amos 5 and verse 10. You know, some people, when preacher preaches, elders teach, Bible class teachers teach, and they teach against sin, you know, those who want to continue to indulge and engage in it, they have an absolute fit about the teacher. Doesn't matter if it's an elder, preacher, by it doesn't matter. They hate the one who rebukes and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly, Amos 5.10. Doesn't matter, God still doesn't want it in his house. As we conclude this morning, I have a couple of questions. Do you know what is as ugly as sin to Almighty God? Do you know what's as ugly as sin to God? 
Nothing. Absolutely nothing is as ugly to God. So how ugly then should sin be to you and me as His children? Just as much as it is to our Heavenly Father. Sin is ugly. Sin is disgusting. Sin is deadly. Sin is fatal. Sin is terminal. But thanks be to God, this sin is not inescapable. Isn't God awesome? Sin is not inescapable. I love God so much, and I know you do too. Sin is not inescapable in Romans chapter 6. All I had to do to escape sin, to escape its clutches and its grasp, was to be buried with Him in baptism. To be buried in baptism with Him for the forgiveness of their sins and rise to walk in newness of life. What does it mean to rise to walk in newness of life? It means leave sin behind because God hates it. It's ugly and disgusting. And you can't walk with God any more than Adam and Eve could if you're going to continue to welcome sin into your midst. You can't do it. So they walk in newness of life. And we read in verse 23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Sin is escapable. In Romans chapter 7, Paul fights with sin. But you know what he says after he says, Wretched man that I am who will save me from the body of this sin? Even after we become Christians, if we get tangled up in sin, we can still get out. God offers His grace and His love and His mercy. Now there's some things we got to do. Like the prodigal son, we got to repent. Repentance is not something done from the front of the church building. Repentance is a change of heart towards sin. And I ain't, I'm not getting involved in that ugly, disgusting stuff anymore. And we need to confess to the church. Our, our sin needs to be confessed as, as publicly as our sin was. If somebody, everybody in church and town knows what's going on, we need to then make sure they all know that we know that we messed up. But we can get out of it. This is the beautiful thing. Sin may be fatal and ugly and deadly and terminal, but it's not inescapable. Praise God. Romans 8 and verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an awesome God. This morning, if you're here and you've never been baptized to escape the clutches of sin, we'd love to have you do that. <laughs> You'd probably love it more, especially if the Lord called you today. But if you've already done that, but maybe you struggle to come out, maybe in some way you have accepted or condoned or supported sin. Maybe you're struggling and you can't seem to get away from it. Maybe you're supporting it in somebody else's life, which makes you just as guilty by association. According to God's word, I didn't write it, I'm just reading it. But if you're struggling with that and you want to repent and you want God's forgiveness and you want to make that known, if we can pray for you, if there's anything at all along those lines that we can do for you this morning, would you please come to the front as we stand and as we sing?